Are you critically insane, have a lot of excess money, or even better, both? Then you can support this podcast by clicking on the ACAR support button. You can give as rarely and as little as you want, which, judging by the quality of this, I'm sure you're wanting to do. Hello and welcome to a PhD student read episode 15. Um, I am the titular PhD student Daniel Underwood and joining me once again the Peruvian panel reader Rodrigo Cocti. How's it going? You know 15 is a big number for us Hispanics. It's a whole thing about quinceañeras. Oh? Yeah big celebration for people turning 15 in South America. So it's like the the sweet 16 but yeah Sweet 16, but even younger, which I guess is darker in a way if you think too much about it. Well, I imagine you still remind, reminded of the, that, that show where rich people would be like, I'm 16 now, so here's my massive car that my parents bought for me. Yeah, for sure. What monsters, eh? Like, how can you be so comfortable raising monsters <laughs> that young? But, you know, not my situation. No, nor mine. <laughs> um, as this is a podcast, I'll just say it now, get it out of the way with like, share, subscribe. Share it with your friends, share it with your enemies, random people on the street. I don't care. The, the more the merrier in terms of listenership. Oh, and to answer your question, yeah, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Like, uh, I, I, I had mentioned this to you before, but I finally got vaccinated, so that's very relaxing. Uh, hoping that things improve here in Canada pretty soon, pretty fast, so that we can get back out there and have a life this summer. Oh, yes. I think in terms of Scotland, I think... I think we're looking good. I think they've released reports. This is the lowest it's ever been, mm-hmm. which I guess is a good sign. Yeah. That it's not going to just suddenly come back. But I mean, a big win know. for science on this one, right? So I think you oh, can absolutely. take some take some pride in that one. You're part of Team Science. <laughs> yeah, I'll 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 take that. Even though I'm sure <laughs> my uh, bacterial invasion research. Listen, you're all you're all part viruses. of science. You know, ah, the yeah. biologists, whatever you guys are doing, all of you guys can take the win for science. You sound like my uh, my dad. It's like anything, <laughs> anything science related, I must know the answer, even if it's like physics. It's like, well, yeah. I don't know. It's like I know when how I was, cells work. When I was studying biochemistry, my family would come to me with medical questions, and I was just like, oh, I get that one you too. Got, your, your grasp of what's happening here is so far removed of what's the reality. Oh, oh well. I think my parents weren't uni people. Like, I was the first to. Uh, Take the plunge. I think that doesn't help. Mm. Yeah. They're, they're more practical folks. I'm also in a good mood because I finished Age of Apocalypse. It's over now. That's the Age of Apocalypse is done. It is. I mean, uh, it's done, comma. You could actually look more into it if you wanted to. No. no. <laughs> um, I'm, I've had my fill. Thank you. But before we get to me ranting and raving about, about that, it's up to you to take us on a journey to Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. It was a good one, actually. So this time I read volumes 7, 8, and 9 of Daredevil. So kind of where we had left off was uh, Daredevil meeting this woman, Mila, and getting into a whole situation where she ended up at the cops and everything. Like, you know, Daredevil's life had fallen apart, but among all that disaster, he had managed to meet this woman, Mila. And that's kind of where this one continues to kick off. It's still the Brian Michael Bendis uh, arc, his story by him. Art is still by Alex Maleev. Colors by Matt Hollingsworth and the, the letters by uh, virtual calligraphies Corey Petit. 
And, you know, it's just another really outstanding issue. Uh, It starts off with a scene at a soap opera where these actors are just running a scene. And, uh, you know, it ends with her asking for a line. People are coming up to her. Fans want some signatures. Like, this woman seems to be the center of attention. She goes into her changing room and sitting in the middle there is a mysterious, very large, very robust man with dark sunglasses as he has been blinded. It is the kingpin. He's sitting there. He's talking to her. She's kind of confused. She thinks originally he might be somebody that's interviewing her. And, uh, you know, she was saying, I thought it was the, the, the interview was scheduled for later. He kind of tells her, it's like, oh, we've met before and so on. And then they start talking about hypnosis. And he's talking about how it's like sometimes to break somebody out of hypnosis, you have to give them a strong shock to the system. And then he just smacks her across the face. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, yeah, it's quite quite a scene. And then as she stands up, she's smiling in a very sinister way. And the lighting is set up in such a way that her only half of her face is covered. And that's kind of already the insinuation of who she is. She is Typhoid Mary, which is another one of Daredevil's villains. Uh, somebody who suffers. Um, well, actually, I don't know if this is the right term anymore. I feel like it has to, the terminology has changed since this book came out. I think they call it here multiple personality disorder. I think it's now like disassociative identity yeah, disorder. Something something about about right. But, yeah, but anyway, so so she kind of snaps out of where she was, which was a soap soap opera star, and the kingpin has, a, I guess, his her a new right hand person to his side. Then we kind of flash forward to to uh, Mila, and there she's just chatting about the, this kind of crazy date that she went to. She went on with uh, with Daredevil, and you know ended up with a lot of uh, the owl getting involved as he was trying to fight for his territory. And so it seems like she's smitten. I guess I guess the conclusion of I mean, as you uh, would be, hap- as you would be, how would you not be? This man is, is a hero, and so she decides that she's going to continue seeing this man. She goes out with uh, Matt Murdock, the lawyer, both blind. They they happen to take a personal bodyguard who is Jessica Jones. And obviously this is part of Matt Murdock not wanting to acknowledge publicly that he is the vigilante daredevil. He's still fighting the, the, the lawsuit in court, the defamation against the newspaper that outed him. Mm-hmm. And as they're having their, their perfect little walk and stroll through Hell's Kitchen, they run into Typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary does as she does. She's a, a pyrokinetic. Uh, is she a mutant? I think she is a mutant, even though oh, I guess I she doesn't know. really it's live. It's hard to keep track. Yeah, in the X-Men universe. But she she ends up burning, setting Matt on fire. And that's kind of where the first issue stops. The, 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 the rest of the volume kind of flashes back and forth between where we were in that moment where, where Typhoid Mary burns Daredevil and what was happening prior to that. Uh, we start seeing the Kingpin after he woke up Typhoid Mary starting to to come back to Hell's Kitchen and realize that he's basically lost everything, right? He's lost his kingdom, which was sold by his wife, Vanessa Fisk, uh, as he got stabbed and, and put into a small coma for a little bit. And so he starts trying to build it up again. The first thing he does, he goes find his former uh, advisor that assisted Vanessa in selling the kingdom and providing a gun to for her to end uh, the life of their son who had kind of orchestrated the betrayal. And so the first thing he does is kill that man for making a, a, a mistake in the estimation of what he thought the kingpin would have wanted. And then he starts rebuilding his his, uh, his kingdom, I guess. And he has to tackle with the fact that that the owl had been selling MGH, which is a Marvel drug called mutant growth hormone, which I guess is supposed to be just like human growth hormone, but taken from mutants. So what it does, it gives ends up giving you a bit of a high and some powers, which people enjoy. Um, 
he very violently goes after all these kind of, I guess, drug dealers from all around this place and shoots them, kills them. He's taking back his kingdom, right, by any means necessary. One of the people involved is a Japanese man named Sano. He is, I guess, kind of responsible for some of the distribution of the mutant growth hormone. Typhoid Mary is sent to, to deal with him, and she makes quick work, absolutely destroys this man. And that's kind of a thread that will be picked up later. But it's also something that is noticed by the FBI as we meet this cool federal agent called Agent Driver. And he just shows up to where the Kingpin's chilling. And in a scene very reminiscent of like where uh, Christopher Nolan took Batman in Batman Begins, where it's like, yeah, people know where the mobsters are. The problem is making the connection. And how do you get them behind bars? He shows up and he's just like, you know, I know what you're doing. Like, you're going to end up in jail. You might as well... You know, you know, he just kind of wants to make it clear that the FBI has an eye on Kingpin as he's trying to build himself back up. The Kingpin, and I guess what must be a power move, gives him a, a, an audio file and he throws that at him and it's like a gift, right? And I don't know if you remember from last time that the owl knows that now that Matt Murdock was uh, was Daredevil. And so he tries to set him up with like audio and video to like try to get it, catch him red handed, breaking the law, right? And inadvertently he has recorded himself doing talking about his crime and so that's what the kingpin gives the fbi agent enough to put the owl away for a while and as uh as he he does this he kind of realized like they kind of continue their conversation and he realized that this federal agent is not going to be is easily dissuaded from what he's trying to achieve and so he sends uh typhoid mary to cause a distraction and that distraction is that uh that fight that he has with which that she has with matt murdoch in with Mila there and Jessica Jones. Uh, so we go, we flash back to the fight and like Daredevil is burning. Fortunately, he gets put out. Jessica Jones takes Mila to safety real quick and then returns to the fight. They're having uh, a bit of, of a back and forth, the two of them against Typhoid Mary. And the fight's finally resolved when Luke Cage shows up. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know how much people know about street level heroes, but Luke Cage at this point in time was actually kind of the beginning of where Jessica Jones was being written. One of the subplots was that she was dating Jessica, jo uh, sorry, Luke Cage in the Alias book, and so he had was just showing up because he was going to take Jessica Jones out for lunch. But you know, happens to be that he has impenetrable skin, so the swords that she fights with the, the can't hurt him. The fire doesn't really burn him. Perfect kind of foil for her powers. They knock out Typhoid Mary, and then they kind of go back to recover. Matt Murdock's uh, hair is burnt off, I guess, which is kind of a cool. Like, a cool little thing, because it's like, yeah, you often see, like, scratches and stuff, but it's like somebody that fights with fire obviously would cause a lot more scarring, you know, like, burn hair off, like, that kind of thing. So, like, half his hair is burnt off. Agent Driver comes and visits him, and, you know, he kind of gives him the acknowledgement that it's like, you know, you're doing a shitty job at, at keeping your, your secret identity secret, if that's what you've been trying to do, because... Like, obviously, Matt Murdock doesn't own up to being Daredevil in front of him. But at the same time, he's not doing the little, like, dance of pretending that he's yeah. not Daredevil either. They just kind of acknowledge that, like, yeah, he's, he, like, you know, like, if we want to work together, there's some stuff, etc. Like, and Agent Driver gives him a heads up that Kingpin is trying to set up his, his kingdom again and apologizes because he thinks he may have inadvertently sent Typhoid Mary to him because he was putting the pressure on the Kingpin. We return to Kingpin and you can see him... Talking about the MGH situation, how he's building up his kingdom and what he needs as a next move. He's talking to the mysterious figure that we don't find out until the end of the issue that is actually Bullseye. And I will specify that the Bullseye, again, of this era, like if you imagine the comic book Bullseye, it's always like the full costume one. Though this one looks like Colin Farrell from the oh. movie. 
uh, from the Daredevil mm-hmm. movie because this is around the time that it came out, and this is the kind of thing that they do often, right? They try to make these these like assets the match on his head of the target, the little tattoo on his head, which comes back later. So as they're recovering, Matt and Mila, they're chilling in the house, and uh, Daredevil puts on his costume, and Mila's kind of confused, saying like, "We just got attacked. Are you really going to go out again?" And you know, this is a really important pattern that we start seeing that like Matt keeps on like it's it's hard to not describe it almost as an addiction where it's like you were just in danger, but then you're going back into the mouth of the lion immediately for, for what reason, right? Especially when you know that you have me at home. And it's kind of tested because as soon as he disappears into the darkness from the shadows of the room, Mila kind of hears noise as a blind person, probably more sensitive to, to that kind of thing. And she just turns around and then you see that the shadow from the shadows emerges bullseye. And now that he's in the house alone with Mila, and he kind of starts going on this little bit of monologue to to put the, the fear of God into her. And as he's talking, Daredevil jumps in and, and sneaks up on, on Bullseye and drags him out of the house, telling Mila to, to go ahead and, and call the police. And he says, like, say whatever you need to to get the police yeah. here. As in the between the lines, like, if you need to say that I'm at Daredevil's house and I'm being attacked, like, go ahead and do that, right? Because obviously her safety comes first. They have a pretty cool fight. It ends with uh, with Daredevil making note of uh, Bullseye's little new look with the tattoo on his head of the Bullseye. And in what is kind of, I guess, representative of his mental state and the, the, the amount of loss that has been caused by Bullseye and just how uh, little patience Daredevil has left, he grabs a sharp object and he's like, kind of he maybe i'll read this almost literally he's like what is it supposed to be your logo your super cool badass logo i'll give you something to think about and then he starts grabbing this sharp object and he's like this circle is for electra as he's carving in a circle and this circle is for karen and this center point right here is for when you finally realize that no one cares and then he basically says how he has no purpose in this world he's just a violent person and so when one day Bullseye wakes up and he realizes that he's basically contributed nothing to this world. He can finally grab a, a gun and put it there and aim perfectly to the middle of what he has just Jesus, given him. Matt. And just leaves him. Yeah, Matt, Matt is really losing it. And as he's doing this, like, Mila has called the FBI agents. They show up. Agent Driver is saying, like, is this the real Bullseye? Yeah, and because like, I guess he's, like, on the, the FBI's most wanted list in, in this universe, right? And so he goes back to Mila and he's able to have a chill time. And that's kind of where the the main part of this issue is lying is is going to stop. But we do have one final scene that is a very very key scene, and it is uh, there. Uh, sorry, Kingpin talking to all his new, I guess, like main people across the cities, right? And he's making it really clear that he will not. He's like back in business. He's retaking everything, and that he's not going to accept anything like what happened previously, right? And so he's like cementing himself as perhaps a more violent daredevil. But as he's about to to head out, having been done with this conversation, daredevil has a little bit more to say. He confronts him. I'm pretty sure he runs him over with a car at one point. And then as he's standing up, uh, he, he kind of beats him up, right? And he's like, had enough. He tells him like, sending over bullseye was a line that he sh- perhaps should not have crossed. But and and in in this cool way, we kind of see that this fight has been building up since forever, right? And the art is represented as in like classic Golden Age comics evolving oh, into cool. now. It's like just punch after punch after punch between Daredevil and the Kingpin of this endless back and forth that has been causing too much loss and death. And Daredevil is just done. He gets like a he he 
wins, I guess, in the fight against Kingpin. And then he says, uh, these are the new rules of Hell's Kitchen. This is the Kingpin, your Kingpin. This is Wilson Fisk. And I beat him with my bare hands. And so he says, basically, that he's no longer protecting the city. He is now running it. If people have this like un- incomprehensible need to have a Kingpin for this city to work, then they can now look at Daredevil as the Kingpin, right? Those are the new rules, and that's how it's going to be. So he tells all these criminals to start spreading the word. And he says, if you think I'm kidding, look at this carcass right in front of you. Look at him. And it's Kingpin's uh, lifeless body. He isn't actually dead, spoiler alert. But it's just a a, a dramatic, dramatic, dramatic effect uh, to to put Matt Murdock in this new power position where he's no longer going to be the one chasing after Fisk. He's done with these little games that, like, uh, you know, the villains and heroes play constantly. Uh, That's issue seven. Issue eight returns is... A one-off that goes back to um, David Mack's character, Echo. This one actually is not written by Brian Michael Bendis. The story and art is by David Mack. The letters is by Virtual Calligraphy's Corey Petit. And I will say there is, like, sometimes people make these questions about, like, what do you like more, the say, like, the comic book version of Wanted or the movie version or something like that, right? And it's like... I don't know how effective these conversations are because different mediums have different strengths and, and and weaknesses, right? And I think in particular, when you look at a comic book and you look at the things that it is capable of doing that other mediums are not, uh, that is perfectly exemplified in this volume that is uh, David Max. Uh, I think this one's called Vision Quest. And so I would very, rec- I would highly recommend somebody like everybody go out and look at this because. I cannot express in words what is what how this issue is framed exactly. It is a mixed. It's almost like a mixed medium variety of art where you can see sketches and paint and like uh, simulations of cut out pieces of paper. And it explores it explores the history of Echo and where she was previously. If, If you don't remember, her father, Crazy Horse, was a partner of Kingpin who died when she was about nine years old. Kingpin took her in and raised her and basically loved her uh, as a daughter, according in his words, and pointed the blame at some point later on at Daredevil. And so Echo, the, the, the character, was going against Daredevil, the vigilante, while at the same time Maya Lopez, the deaf woman, was bonding with Matt Murdock, the blind lawyer, right, and, and developing this relationship. And so at the end of that, she was left very confused in, in that she had to kind of try to square all the the circle right and 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 she this kind of continues some of those threads she she goes back and visits matt murdoch and tells her tells him that you know he's really the only person that she felt understood by ever since kind of the the more disruptive things happened in our previous time and daredevil at this point tells her that it's like well he's involved now with another woman so he can't really help her there and so she has to move on from that moment where she kind of had hope that she had finally found something. She goes to visit the kingpin. She once again gets, gets uh, I guess, kind of comforted or, or I don't know if it would be comfort, but she does hear the words that kingpin does own up to everything that he did. But he does say that in his own like weird way, he loves her and he he feels for her as close to love as he is capable of as a person. And so she kind of looks, she kind of realizes that maybe the path that she's looking for is elsewhere. So she returns to the the uh, reservation where her father 
grew up and she meets with an elder and he suggests going on a vision quest, which is a tradition by uh, many Native American, North American uh, indigenous people or Native Americans, right? And uh, basically goes on this journey for four days uh, where no eating, no drinking water and, and so on. And she's trying to see like what path is ahead for her. And at one point she encounters a variety of animals between them two dogs fighting each other. And then later on, she even encounters another cool Marvel hero, Wolverine. And so Wolverine was also there because he, you know, at different times, he's been, I guess, more animalistic than others. And so he, you know, he has this connection to to these traditions in North America that it's not entirely unsurprising that he would be there. And so they chat and, you know, Echo describes what she's been going through. And Daredevil, sorry, Wolverine talks to her about like well what did you see and she describes the scene about two two dogs fighting and then wolverine t- tells her about this story that he he once heard from the elder that had sent echo on her quest and um it had to do with two dogs fighting that everyone has inside there is a mean dog and then there is a good dog and these dogs will always fight throughout all your life and so the question then becomes which dog wins and wolverine says that the dog that wins is the dog that you as a person feed more, that you make bigger, right? And so Echo kind of sees the own parallels in her life for that. And she realizes that it's like, yeah, she can give in to this anger that she has towards like Wilson Fisk and the murder of her father. And like this almost bitter disappointment that she has now that Daredevil has moved on or that she can try to start feeding the good dog that is inside her. And then there's this nice, nice touch where it ends up being that her father... Uh, Crazy Horse is the one that told this story originally to the Elder that then told it to Wolverine. And now, I guess the question is left, like, is Wolverine really there or was he just part of, like, Echo's vision quest that that she was going through? Either way, she finds resolution, which is what she was looking for. She meets up with Matt Murdock one last time and she kisses them and then there's this nice scene where uh, the narration says that, you know, Daredevil doesn't fight the kiss back because he knows it's a kiss goodbye as an Echo is moving on from from that part and like i said this issue the way that it is done like the story is great it's kind of what i described but the art like the way that it is physically presented i think it's like exactly it challenges the limits of what comic books as a medium can do and i think that's very cool so you should you should uh read that that's that's volume eight of this this run and it's also while it may feel like a bit of a, a a weird like we just ended with daredevil being kingpin and then we just took a break The break is there on purpose, because when we come back for Volume 9, which is the last one that I will talk about, it is uh, a year after the last scene that we saw. So that's part of the break that like that's when Echo went on her vision quest and and met up with Matt Murdock. Um, The Volume 9, which is called The King of Hell. Before you get to Volume 9, I will say I gave I did a quick Google of Daredevil vision quest. And I agree. I have not seen anything like this ever. Yeah. Absolutely. And you can see some of this in the previous David Mack Bendis Echo, which I think is parts of a Even whole. the cover is quite something. Yeah, it, it it's absolutely like really, really breathtaking. So I would definitely recommend it. But As would I. Yeah, for sure. As someone that Check hasn't it read it. Just look at it. Google it like I did. Because it's not just that the art is beautiful. It's like even like when she's, she's talking about, like, for example, that the, the elder had taught her... Um, Indian sign language, right? And so she's saying something and you can see the illustrated the signs. And then in the back, you can see almost like all these words. And it's like the the, the care and the minutiae and the detail that has been put into this issue. Like you could take 
maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes to read the full trade, or you can take like three hours to really dive deep and to look at all these different things, right? So it's re- very w- well worth checking out. So back to the main story, though. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis returns with his ninth volume, King of Hell's Kitchen, with more art by Alex Maliev, color still by Matt Hollingsworth. Like I said, all these three are pretty consistent throughout. So, uh, you know, I say the Bendis run, but really should be all three because they did amazing work. And uh, this issue kind of deals with the outfall of what happened since the last time. Um, it starts off with Ben Urich, journalist that know, happened to know Daredevil's uh, secret identity, meeting up with a, sh- uh, a shaded figure and talking about the hell of the year that they just had. They talk about how after uh, Hell's, uh, Daredevil proclaimed himself the, the, the kingpin of Hell's Kitchen, it was, you know, an incredibly violent uh, period after that. But shortly thereafter... It was all of a sudden peaceful. It's almost like it had worked. And then, you know, like they, they described a scene where it's like people even approach Matt Murdock, even with the insinuation of him being Daredevil to be the mayor of, uh, of I guess, New York. I don't think Hell's Kitchen has its own mayor, but they, they, they do recommend, yeah, the mayor of New York City. And at the same time, Foggy has managed to gain a, a big settlement from the, the newspaper company that had released his identity. And so it's looking like things are, are finally looking up. But Ben Yurick describes that it's like, you know, back then when things were looking nice, we could have never guessed the disaster that would have been, that would have led to what's happening now, right? And we see some other scenes where it's like Matt Murdock is just walking through, I guess, maybe Central Park or a park, right? I don't know which one it happens to be. And he runs into Luke Cage, Peter Parker, Reed Richards, and and uh, Doctor Strange. And so Matt Murdock is like, uh, like he he's he kind of knows what's happening, but he still kind of questions them. It's like, what what are they doing, right? And he even goes after Peter Parker and tells him, it's like you shouldn't let like because I guess Matt Murdock knows his identity, but maybe uh, Doctor Strange and and Luke Cage didn't. And he says, you see, now Luke and Doctor Richards really know who you are. You shouldn't be lost, laid be so laid back with your secret identity, it might come back to bite you. And then you'll have some hard life-altering decisions to make. And then all your so-called friends can decide you need some kind of talking to or whatever this is. And you'll have to meet us in the park so Luke Cage can. And he's going on about like how how high, like what a high horse these people are coming in on, right? To, to judge the things that he felt, felt he needed to do to be able to get through this period. And so it's this very interesting conversation between these, these these superheroes and where Matt Murdock is adamant that he did the right thing by setting a hard line and getting all the criminals out of Hell's Kitchen. But Luke Cage explains that it's like they've gone out of Hell's Kitchen, but they haven't disappeared, right? They moved into Queens. They've moved, moved into Manhattan. They moved into everybody else's neighborhood. And then so he's saying, well, okay, everybody like call a borough of New York City and own it and then they won't be there. And then Peter Parker saying like, well, then they'll move to Philadelphia. And he makes a joke about Philadelphia. But it's like the bigger point is that it's like the what you're doing isn't solving the problem. It's just pushing it to somebody else, right? But Matt Murdock is certain that he's he's done the right thing and that he's he's done his job in in keeping his people safe because the previous situation for him was just untenable. Like he couldn't continue allowing for for this game between Kingpin and the Owl and all these people where the true victims are the city. And you know, that's ultimately how Daredevil feels, right? Like Daredevil is, is in love with the city. And so as he's walking back from this meeting in the park, he encounters a member of the Yakuza. And this is kind of where uh, it's pretty fun in that uh, I, we we had mentioned it earlier, but there was uh, it, during the MGH uh, whole thing, yeah. there was a character named Seno who was 
kind of a Japanese, and he was part of the Yakuza, and so that's kind of what's happening. They've been, they were the ones that had been pushing MGH into the streets, and they're not okay with Daredevil taking over and blocking out this big market because as Ben Yurik, you wouldn't be right. Yeah, and so Ben Yurik describes that he. That once a drug is out there, you can't put the genie back into the bottle. Like the demand has been created. And so it's like the supply is going to find its way into the city. And so they have a huge fight. And at the end of the fight, Daredevil kind of escapes. He doesn't win, right? He he escapes. And then we find out who Ben Yurik has been talking to. He says, he turns and then we see that it's Mila who he's been talking to. And he says, I need your help, Ben. You know, Matt said that if anything ever happened to come to you, I need your help to help me find my husband. And so that is a big shock for, for Ben, right? Because it's like, wait, so Matt Murdock got married and that's a, a big surprise for him. And so they started, at, like, he, he starts asking because he says, like, he didn't really see him as a marrying type. And then Mila talks about how, you know, Matt describes her as kind of like almost like the city turned into a person. And, you know, he loves the city, right? And he loves her. And he's a good, he's always been a good Catholic boy. Like Catholicism is a big part of Matt Murdock, the character. And so Ben kind of accepts a lot of this, and he's like, okay, I'm going to do my best to find out what's happening. Meanwhile, the FBI are still looking into some of these people that were caught in the skirmish with Daredevil. They're trying to figure out, you know, what's happening. The, the, you can see a lot of uh, a lack of fear, I guess, or a certain recklessness from, the, from, from the, these gang members that are like, uh, I guess, you know, like they kind of set their own rules, right? They, they have no fear of the FBI. They're, they're very ambitious in what they want to do. And so Ben eventually is able to find uh, Daredevil in uh, the 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 night nurses, I guess, clinic. And the night nurse is a character that has showed up in some yeah. Netflix shows, was played by Rosario Dawson, but is an, an original character of a lot of these street level heroes. And that she just basically runs like a street level clinic where these heroes go and get patched up so they don't have to go to to the doctor, especially because a lot of them don't happen to have, like, say, like, if you were the X-Men or the Avengers, you probably are in contact with healers or, you know, like, and meanwhile, Jessica Jones, uh, Daredevil, Shang-Chi, the White Tiger, all these street-level heroes, they, like, you know, they get shot. Absolutely. They don't have powers to help with that, so that's where they go to the Night Nurse. So the Night Nurse is doing her job and telling him, telling Ben that no one's there, and then she gets a call, and uh, it's matt on the other line and she says like yeah you can go see him it's third door down the left or whatever and so he goes in and they have this conversation and uh ben asks uh matt like what do you think it would look like if a person in your situation like since karen page and then getting outed and all these things like what do you think it would look like if a vigilante a person in a costume had a nervous breakdown and that's just kind of the question that he's left with and as he steps out Foggy was at the door and hears that and all he says is kind of like, I can't believe I didn't see it until now. And so eventually Matt Murdock starts getting better and uh Daredevil starts coming home. He's able to to see to see um uh Mila again and to see kind of things from a different perspective. So he starts thinking about the what Ben said, like what does it look like if a person in a situation starts having a, a mental breakdown? And he, he starts reconsidering a lot of what he did. And so he goes back to Luke Cage and he's like, he admits that he was wrong, that he went too far and that he like, no, there was no checks and balances as he was slowly like getting angrier and angrier and angrier as everything was happening. 
and his life he says you know my life spiraled out of orbit and i didn't and 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 i didn't stop it right and so luke cage is actually and i love this scene a lot because luke cage literally just says okay and then matt asks okay it's like yeah like he didn't need an apology or anything he just needed an acknowledgement that like something was wrong here and so they go and they beat up the the yakuza and they they just they take back it, it's a very fun thing they bring in spider-man iron fist they team up and he like says very clearly you know, like you bring an army, I bring a bigger army, and so they take back the whole thing. And he he kind of, I guess, he makes clear that he is back to being the superhero. At the same time, um, Matt le- leaves Mila with Foggy, and Foggy just has a conversation with her and starts asking, like, "Do you know who Karen Page is?" And I, they start talking about, you know, like what Matt's been going through since it started. And so it ends in a nice place for the superhero Daredevil. But when Matt Murdock comes home, Mila has a very pointed question for him and asks, like, is our marriage part of your nervous breakdown? And Damn. Matt just says, I don't know. And so that's kind of where that that issue ends. And so it ends in a good place for Daredevil. Matt Murdock's uh, life still falling apart. And that's where, where, where I'll leave it for now. There's still one last chunk left for the Bendis era to finish. But, you know, it's like a lot more of what Bendis has been doing since the beginning, right? Like this kind of fine balance between Matt Murdock, the human, and Daredevil, the superhero, and the drama in both those different facets of his life coming together and and affecting the other side and how complicated all of this really is. I understand that he is Daredevil, but if I... And he took out the kingpin. All right, that's you know that's a big a big power play. But if I was mm-hmm. all the other gangs out there, to be like it's one guy, can't we just kill him? <laughs> like, and then then, mm-hmm. then then one of them could be the kingpin, or maybe like ruled by committee. Instead of just be like, yes, okay, you're right, you yeah. are the kingpin of Hell's Kitchen now. Yeah. I think that it's that's kind of part of it too. It's like how futile it all is, right? Like even though Daredevil thinks he's ending that game by, by, uh, by stopping the Kingpin and saying he's going to take over now. Well, he's just another part of it now. He's just a part of the game still, right? And so I think that's kind of the acknowledgement that he has in the end that it was a mistake for him to say that, like that he didn't really fix the problem. He either prolonged the problem or just had the problem somewhere else, and so. I think, unfortunately, it's a hard lesson for, for Matt to learn, but, you know, it's it's fun to see heroes not be able to fully fix things, right? Like, the that's, I think, where the best comic book writing is when, like, heroes are fallible or have shortcomings that they need to, to find a way to overcome. To, is to the, come to the, uh, the cat back in the bag, so to speak, is in that Daredevil, Matt Murdock are two people? Well, they... I, well, I mean, the settlement kind of, I guess, makes it seem that for some people that they would read into that, that he wasn't, that the newspaper settled for making a mistake. But I think it's definitely out there enough that people, uh, you know, like it, it would be, I would say, like, if I lived in Hell's Kitchen during that time, I would probably talk yeah. to my friends like, so do you think Matt Murdock is Daredevil or not? And it's like no hard proof either way, but Should've enough with that you can, you can make a valid argument. Someone else in the suit be like, look, we're in the same place. We can't be the same person. I mean, not to spoil that, but that, that does have happened I'm a little bit later. Looking forward to that. What I'm also looking forward to is not talking about Age of Apocalypse <laughs> ever again. So here let's we go. Hear it. Let's this hear is Age of Apocalypse, the complete epic, volume Apocalypse. four, published by Marvel Comics, unsurprisingly, on November the first, two thousand and six. And before I get to it, 
I thought it was actually really good. <laughs> Which is a shocking thing to say after three months of just complaining. Um, but and the there's a the issue of X Men Omega within here that I think might actually be one of the favourite single issues I've ever read. <laughs> but uh, of course, because it is Age of Apocalypse, the good does come with a big dose of the bad. So, <laughs> but before we get to that, I need to read off the yeah. classes worth of people that were involved. And when writing these out, it made me think of when I used to work in a summer school and you had to. If we had to like address the whole cohort by like a register or something, or at the end of this thing they were all given awards and you had to read everybody's name. This is exactly like that. So for the last time, the writers are Fabian Nicenzia, Mark Wade, John Francis Moore, Scott Lobdell, Judd Winnick, Jeff Loeb, Terry Kavanagh, Larry Hummer, Chris Batchelow, and Warren Ellis. Pencilers of Chris Batchelow, Brian Hitch, mm-hmm. Jeff Matsuda, Gary Frank, Mike McCone, Ben Herrera, Paul Pelletier, Salvador LaRocca, Carlos Pacheco, Steve Epting, Terry Dodson, Roger Cruz, Trevor McCarthy, Andy Kubert, Adam Kubert, Luke Ross, Ken Lashley, and Steve Stroke. A lot of people. Inkers, Mark Buckingham, Al Milgram, Cam Smith, Robin Riggs, Tim Townsend, Matt Ryan, Carl Kessel, Rod Ramos, Rick Ketchum, Tyson McAdoo, Dan Green, P. Craig Russell, Mark Farmer, Scott Hanna, Mark McKenna, Tom Palmer, Hector Colazzo, Tom... Ah, oh, his name gets me every time. Wegsrin? W-E-G-R-Z-Y-N. Wegsrin. I guess we'll we'll go with that. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm never saying it again unless he is somehow <laughs> involved in some other comic book I'm yet to read. I kind of hope so. Philip Boy, Bud Larosa, and Harry Candelario. Colorists: Marie Javins, Glynis Oliver, Kevin Tinsley, Mark Bernardo, Joe Rojas, Steve Bucatello, Kevin Summers, Mike Thomas, and Liquid Color. Letterers. At least there's only a few of these. Chris Eliopoulos, because he seems to letter everything Marvel have put out in the past yeah. 50 years. Pat Brusso, Richard Starkings, and of course, Comic Craft are involved. And there's a cover by John Romita Jr., which, much like the last volume, I don't think is very good. So, Age of Apocalypse, after now finish it, is like a rhombus, where at one, the top vertex, you've got X-Men Chronicles number one, and then it all branches out into a big diamond, and then funnels back in, to X-Men Omega at the bottom. So, much like last time, I've grouped them together in terms of the team, but that's okay because in this volume, it's basically a single issue per team, and then X-Men Omega, the, the vertex of the rhombus, where they're all together. So, generation next. We pick up and where we left off, and Ileana Rasputin who was rescued by Mondo and is being rescued because she has uh, time, latent time travel abilities yet to be discovered, um, is held inside Mondo. And as the two of them sneak their way out of the Sugar Man's lair, um, on his way out, he comes across another young girl and agrees to save her too. A few floors up from this, we catch up with Chamber, Skin, Husk and Vincente, and the latter two, you may remember, have taken the form of Sugar Man's head of security, Quietus by combining Husk's ability to change her shape and Vincente's ability to change his 
matter state. So he's in the form of air to fill out this quieter's character's large suit. And they've been cornered by the Sugar Man and a large group of his goons. But the Sugar Man, who must know his head of security quite well, sees through this disguise and uses his razor-sharp tongue to pierce the suit and the gaseous form of Vincente. So the man basically deflates, Husk turns back into Husk, and they prepare for a fight. But an explosion rocks the room, and Generation Next teaches Colossus and Shadowcat burst onto the scene. Chamber uses his ability of a hole in his chest to blast the Sugar Man and allow both him and Skin to go off and reunite with Mondo, rescue Ileana, and the rest of them play defence around uh, Husk and the wounded Vigente. The pair of young mutants arrive at their rock-based comrade, um, and that razor-sharp tongue strikes again and just goes straight through Mondo, and then the Sugar Man tears him apart. So that's the first death in this volume. Strap yourself in for many. Um, so he's dead. Um, the Sugar Man has got Ileana Rasputin in, in his midst, but Colossus smashes through the ceiling and crushes him. The team are now reunited and make their way to the exit, but only Shadowcat, Colossus and Ileana make it out, the rest being overrun by the Sugar Man's goons. Um, so the Bessel Mutant tries to go back in, but he isn't strong enough. Basically a door shuts and Colossus is not strong enough to open it. So all the rest of Generation X, they're all trapped inside, never to be seen again. Um, so Colossus meets up with Shadowcat and they have a little small heart-to-heart -heart about everyone is dead now. It's just the three of them. And they should travel back to Westchester to uh, meet up with the X-Men. Um, Sugar Man, he also makes it out because he has the ability to change his size. So he wasn't actually crushed by Colossus, but he shrank down very small and hid into his boot. And whilst I've been critical of Generation Next, specifically the colouring, and I'm not a big fan of the high contrast look that it's had, um, this issue was really good I, and I was a big fan of the depressing ending um, I think it it feeds into some of the actions Colossus is about to make which are incredibly questionable but before we get to those it's Excalibur my favorite um, Nightcrawler, Mystique, Switchback and the villain turned hero Damask stand in the ruins of mutant and human haven Avalon after an attack by Apocalypse's forces and are waiting for a second assault. And this second assault comes in the form of the Shadow King who possesses a random mutant named Wendy who has lightning-based powers. But Mystique puts a swift end to that by shooting her with a massive gun. And, uh, well, whilst that kills Wendy, that doesn't defeat the Shadow King who just teleports into someone else's mind. Uh, and this now a green sort of elven-looking mutant named Marcus. So Damask uses her powers of psionic skinning, which is basically she has sort of Ghost Rider-esque chains that come out of her hands that wrap around the individual's brain and do something or other. But she overdoes it a bit and instead of killing the Shadow King, she kills Marcus. So who's next on the list to be possessed? It's Mystique. And uh, the Shadow King utilises her shape-shifting abilities to turn her into Sabretooth. But then Nightcrawler thinks, 
that the Shadow King uses the same realm to transport between people as he does to teleport. How he discerns this, no idea, but he thinks it, and luckily he's correct. Um, and so he teleports the him and Damask and Switchback, who has the power to sort of lengthen a period of time to travel to that in-between place get the sh- uh, and kick the Shadow King out of Mystique's head. Um, I think a lot of these powers often seem like the writer was like, how do I do this one thing? And then just like, I'll just create a new moon that has the situation going it's on. It's like when uh, they changed Cyclops' powers, that his eyes were portals to a different realm, and that's where the laser came from. It's like, just make yeah. it come out of his eye. What's wrong with that? <laughs> um, but it turns out that Marcus, he wasn't dead, and... He is still possessed by the Shadow King, and he sort of fires an energy blast out of his hand as he is about to die. And Destiny's adopted son, Doug Ramsey, jumps in front of the energy blast, and he dies. So his death is then what spurs Destiny. The whole reason Excalibur were there to travel back to the USA, prove that Bishop is Bishop, and uh, join the fight against Apocalypse. I thought this issue was fine. I mean, it's my least favourite of the Excalibur issues. It's basically just uh, they need to come up with a reason to get Destiny to go to the United States after she said no in the previous one. If she'd just Mm -hmm. said yes, none of this would have happened. But, so, we've got Generation Next on their way to Westchester. Excalibur are on their way to Westchester. So now it's time to check in with Nate Gray, the universe's greatest mutant. And he is angry. He is angry because Mr. Sinister killed his subgroup father, Forge, and uh, brought about that little theatrical troupe he was travelling with. This issue is basically split into two. The first half is just the two of them having a fight. Uh, It's quite a cool fight, but then, of course, Nate wins and Mr. Sinister dies. Um, Which, in the end, it turns out he's quite pleased about because Mr. Sinister says, I've lived too long. I've done too much. I can be at peace now. So that's good for him. Um, Nate then says his goodbyes to Sauron and Teresa and must make his way to Magneto and Apocalypse after instructions from Forge as he was dying. But luckily these two are in exactly the same place because Apocalypse captured Magneto in the last volume. So he makes his way to Manhattan and runs into his, not parents, genetic donors that were used to create him, Cyclops and Jean Grey, who escaped the Dark Beast and are attempting to rescue Apocalypse's prisoners. They have a very, very brief interaction. They barely speak. Um, they sort of they meet. There's some sort of psionic madness that gives them all a headache. And then they go their separate ways, which I thought was a bit of a poor payoff because they're constantly talking about how Nate is the the genetic offspring of Scott and Jean, and they share about three speech bubbles. But Nate's got places to be. He's got to go fight Apocalypse. But we pick up what Scott and Jean are doing in Factor X. Um, They are, again, trying to basically sneak back into where they just escaped from to free all the prisoners, because Apocalypse has decided that these prisoners are not necessary anymore and will use Alex Summers and his elite mutant force that Scott used to run, but again, he's a traitor now, so Alex runs it to just 
wipe them all out. Um, so Jean and Scott run into the Bedlam Brothers, members of this elite mutant force, but they are less than happy with the new leadership and uh, aren't too happy about killing a bunch of innocent prisoners, so they just let them pass. The Guthrie siblings, so those are siblings to Husk that's now dead in a Generation Next, Cannonball and Amazon, they are very happy with this new leadership and are more than willing to fight the Bedlam Brothers and kill Scott and Jean. But the Bedlam Brothers win, uh, Cannonball and Amazon are killed, and uh, the Bedlam Brothers escape to live another and then live another day. We then, yeah, that's at least for now. And then we just get a random bit with Angel in his Haven Club, not Haven Heaven. Um, uh, and Apocalypse has decided that he's had enough of Angel playing both sides, and so sends his infinites to go and kill him. Angel escapes. That's and that's the last we see of Angel. Um, so Scott and Jean make their way to the Brain Trust, a group of telepathic mutant brains that are sort of keeping all the other prisoners in a constant daze and to prevent them from escaping and any sort of uprising. So Jean uses her own telepathic abilities to overcome them and uh, kill them. They, she doesn't mean to kill them, but she overdoes it a bit and they all explode. Which is probably for the best, thinking about it, because they aren't, supposedly they are living mutants, but really they are just brains in tanks. So if I was a brain in a tank, I think I'd rather be dead than kept alive. Throughout all this madness, Alex finds his way to his brother, and of course, a fight ensues. But much like every other time Havoc has been involved in a fight, is dispatched almost immediately. Um, he gets blasted by Scott and falls under a, a pillar. So Gene and Scott escape and lead the group of escaping prisoners onto greener pastures, which of course will be picked up in X-Men Omega. Uh, I found that Factor X always falls somewhere in the middle in terms of how I would rank all the different books that make up Age of Apocalypse, and this final issue continues that trend. But at least it's nice to see Scott being like Cyclops Scott rather than miserable, angry, bad man Scott that he's been in every single one of the other issues. We then move on to Gambit and the externals. Um, and in this final issue, we pick up not with Gambit and the externals, but with a loose thread from X-Men um, in the fact that Dazzler and Exodus are traveling through the Morlock tunnels to find the robot Nanny and Charles, Rogue and Magneto's son, after they fled down there when Apocalypse attacked Westchester. They find the destroyed robot, but no young boy. We then cut to Richter, the bad guy of the externals part of the story um, and he is being interrogated by Apocalypse for failing at something and then the rest of the issue is basically what he failed at but of course it's catching Gambit and the externals. So after re-arriving on Earth the externals split up with Lila and Gambit basically keeping Richter busy whilst Guido and Jubilee take the fragment of the Macran crystal back to the X-Men. But in a twist out of nowhere, and also seems very out of character, it's revealed that Guido is actually an agent of Apocalypse. Um, and this is because he's been in love with Lila this whole time and hates Gambit. And that's it. That's the reason that he has betrayed his entire team. Mm -hmm. It's because he has a crush on a girl, and he and she has a boyfriend in the fact that it's Gambit. 
So Richter causes a cave-in and uh, traps the externals in these uh, tunnels. Um, but, of course, because Guido is very strong, he can escape with both the crystal and Charles. Um, and he brings these back to Apocalypse, and then Apocalypse kills Richter for his uselessness. Uh, so I've been a fan of the externals, but this issue didn't do it for me, basically because there's absolutely no way yeah. I refuse to accept that Guido <laughs> would betray this entire team, that he's sort of, you know, he he's constantly telling how he's looking out for Jubilee, and he was very upset when uh, Sunspot mm-hmm. was killed. But no, it was all a ruse, because he had a crush on a girl who had a boyfriend. They could have come up with... I'm yeah. sure a whole number of ways to get the crystal and Charles into the hands of Apocalypse. And they thought, no, this is the best way. A twist out of nowhere. Yeah. I think it's a product of a time where less depth in comic book writing was like demanded. You know, people were like very okay with that being the reason. And I think it doesn't stand to the test of time of like people getting more complex narrative in comic books and being like, that is the reason, like, you know, like it could be obviously more well thought out, but I think at the time that was sufficient for people to be like, like, sure, that makes sense. Set it up in any way previously. Like I know they, like they've talked about how Guido has a crush on Lila, but that's as far as it goes. It's not been like, Oh, I hate that gambit. Mm -hmm. It's just, no. But the next issue, the next uh, set of issues is X-Men. And they have their own issue. If I was to ask you what race are Bishop and Storm, you would say... Black. That's correct. Well, not here, they're not. They are... If they are, they are the most pale, white-looking black people I've ever seen. Yeah. I don't know if the colourer, whoever that, or that from that list of people, did not know what Bishop and Storm looked like. But at first, I didn't know that it was Bishop. <laughs> apart from... And then they, you see the M on his face. It's like, oh... Okay. But beyond that very glaring problem with uh, this issue of X-Men, it centres on the group of X-Men that were led by Quicksilver that went to go off and save Bishop rather than Rogue's team that went off to fight Nemesis and free the humans back in the last volume. Um, So the Madri continue to talk to Bishop and try and glean information about this alternate universe from his head till Storm flies in and quite literally blows them away with some hurricanes that she makes and of course rescues Bishop. Quicksilver and Banshee, who have disguised themselves as the Madri, I mean as much as they can, seeing as the Madri are all identical looking, they basically put a cloak over their heads and uh, are trying to sneak around to find the original Jamie Madrox. They find him, but he isn't what they expected. Instead of some sort of crazed cult leader which is what I was expecting you find a man with basically the mind of a child who because he has been he's had his mutant abilities stretched beyond far beyond what they should have been able to do by Mr. Sinister and the Dark Beast so in order to defeat the Madri they need to kill Jamie Madrox but Quicksilver is like enough people have died but Banshee is more like ah What's one more life in all of this? It doesn't really matter. Which, I mean... Both valid it's points, a, to it's, be honest. It's fair enough to say in the Age <laughs> of Pockets when 600 people die in every volume. But before either of them can make a decision, Quicksilver's old friend, 
the nemesis from Minnesota, or wherever that part of the story was, Abyss, shows up again. Even though I thought he was killed, but I guess it turns out he wasn't. Um, but this time, Banshee takes the fight to Abyss, whilst Quicksilver deals with getting Jamie Madrox out of there. And uh, Banshee decides to sacrifice himself by flying straight into Abyss's Abyss, I guess, and then uses his blast powers, whatever the, I don't know, scream, <laughs> Banshee's scream to basically explode Abyss from the inside. Mm-hmm. So they, those two definitely dead as well. You can tell this is the last volume, because people dropping like flies. Yeah. Every page says a new character going down. I mean, that's, I think, a staple of working in a universe where it's like, it doesn't matter if you kill everyone, that it's like, as you head out, you're like, I'm going to kill everybody I can. Especially when the, sort of the plot is, just, oh, we're just going to basically make sure Age of Pocket doesn't, doesn't exist at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Jamie Madrox decides that he too will sacrifice himself um, to save Quicksilver, Storm and Bishop. So he uses the last of his powers to sort of switch off all the Madri. They don't get sucked back into him. They just sort of become like, um, well, just like nothing really. They just... What mannequins? That's the word I want to say. <laughs> they like mannequins in a shop. They're just motionless, soulless nothings. So that allows Quicksilver, Storm, Bishop to escape, and they too make their way back to Westchester. So now we sat, we get to actually see what's happening at Westchester. All the X Men teams are starting to come together. So Generation Next meet up with Rogue's returning team of X Men. And uh, Excalibur is there, along with Destiny. Dazna and Exodus make their way out of the tunnels with what's left of the externals. And then when Rogue confronts Gambit, asking where her child is, and he says, oh, well, one of my teammates betrayed us, um, and I didn't (laughs) stop him. Rogue's not very happy, and uh, lays a few punches into him. Quicksilver, Bishop, and Storm then arrive, and they are all ready to go to Manhattan and take the fight to Apocalypse himself. But before we get to that, it's Weapon X, of course, another issue we haven't touched on yet. The Human High Council have finally launched their attack on Apocalypse with their armada of bomb-laden zeppelins heading straight for the USA, guided by Gateway. And in order to guide them through a storm, Gateway is stood on the top of one of the zeppelins, um, because supposedly that allows him to see more clearly. As Logan joins him on the top of his zeppelin, Pierce shows up again, and uh, the rest of his pesky cyborg gang. Brian Braddock is then revealed to be a traitor, because um, he had a chip implanted in his head, and uh, but he managed to overcome this program that has been affecting him this entire time. But right when... You would have thought that this mind control, I guess is an easy way to put it, would be most effective. It's not. And he sort of snaps back to reality, saves Emma Frost, and uh, cuts a, smashes a window and cuts a wire, and Pierce gets sucked out of the Zeppelin. Carol Danvers also makes a return, but she's now part cyborg after sacrificing herself to kill Pierce in the previous volume. Uh, so she's got metal wings now, and is also bad. But she too overcomes her programming um, but before she can even do anything good is killed by Pierce 
who is then killed by Logan. Because it turns out that even though he's got one hand, there are still claws inside his cut-off arm. And he is so angry that these claws pierce through the metal sort of cap thing he's had over his arm and uh, then uses that to kill Pierce. To which I then ask, why hasn't he been doing this the entire time? (laughs) If he's had these extra claws in his arm, why didn't he just pop them out and then they can put the cap on his sort of, you know, the cut-off bit of his arm? That seems much more useful. It'd be like having a hook hand, but for claws, (laughs) rather than just a, a stump of nothing. Yeah. But he didn't. I guess he at the time he he was like, nah, I won't be needing these claws again. One hand is enough. <sighs> Gateway opens a massive portal, and that's big enough to fit the entire fleet through. The Armada has arrived in the United States. But the human high council is uh dealing with Mikhail Rasputin, uh Colossus's brother, in the issues of X Universe. But this begins with some random guy named Rafe. And he's standing there with his wife, watching the masses of humans make their way to onboard Mikhail Rasputin's ship in what they believe will lead to a better life. But you may remember that Mikhail had an empath under his control, and he's, this empath is sort of sending out positive mm-hmm. vibes, and that's leading everyone into uh, Mikhail's ship. But of course, it won't lead to a better life. It leads to basically where these cyborgs like Pierce are made. And that's pretty miserable. But on board the ship are members of the human resistance. We've got Clint Barton, Sue Storm, Ben Grimm, Donald Blake, Gwen Stacy, Victor Von Doom and Tony Stark. And Tony has found his way into the Orvin Harvesting Room as a victim rather than of his own accord. But I think they must have planned this because as the robotic arms come down to extract his organs, they don't expect him to have a metallic heart which they have rewired to unleash an EMP and disable the entire ship, and therefore freeing the prisoners, including all those previously mentioned heroes that are held within. Uh, Obvious riot then ensues, and the various members of the Resistance go off to do their various tasks. So, what would have been the members of the Fantastic Four, basically on rescue duty, saving as many people as they can, Donald Blake returns to the human High Council headquarters on the top of Big Ben, uh, where Mikhail is talking to Thunderbolt Ross and a bunch of other people. And uh, after a very small fight with the aid of Victor Von Doom, uh, Donald Blake pushes Mikhail out of the top of Big Ben. So he's dead now as well. Tony and Gwen make their way to the helm of the ship and they face the Hulk. The Hulk is there. It's Grey Hulk, who is smart. And I think what is a... I wasn't too sure, because the Hulk has only obviously been in an issue of X-Universe number one, and was barely in that. I think, at least from my reading, the Hulk is aligned with Apocalypse, but Bruce Banner is aligned with the heroes, because the Grey Hulk takes out Gwen Stacy, mm-hmm. but then after talking to Tony... He turns back into Bruce and then Bruce helps them. So I think that's the way around it is. But basically, they take control of the ship and they fly off to live a better life. It, the issue basically just ends. I was confused because at first I thought there's like a big sort of flash. And I guess that's the ship flying away. Like they're sort of like, you know, focus on the, the, you know, the engine flare. 
this sort of comes out of yeah. nowhere. It's like, oh, here's Bruce Banner at the helm. The end. They've saved all these people. Matt Murdock is in it for a tiny bit. He's one of Mikhail's henchmen. And he has a role of... Uh, he kills the empath. He, he too decides that it turns out Apocalypse has been wrong this whole time. It's taken this long for people to really figure it out. <laughs> and so he kills this empath. And then... Uh, so... Matt Murdock is under the belief that his extra senses are due to Mikhail's doing. He, some implants that Mikhail put in Matt led to him having these powers. So he rips out all of his implants and it turns out he still has powers. So he has been the Matt Murdock we know this entire time. And that's, Good old Daredevil. that's very upsetting to him. But as I say, they all fly away and have a happy ending. <laughs> But finally, now we get to X-Men Omega, and this is what it's all been building to. One massive issue involving all the teams fighting alongside one another, and it's great. The art is great, the actual plot is great. If anything, I think this may have made up for the rest of Age of Apocalypse. Maybe. It's the last stand, you know? It's like Gandalf riding in with the the Riders of Rohan or whatever. Oh, absolutely. It's like the big the Avengers coming in through the portals. Oh, it's like the big moment. Exactly. And because this issue is so big and could probably have uh, an episode focused on it itself, I basically just... The summary of the story is the X-Men defeat Apocalypse, Bishop goes back to 616 and uh, stops Legion <laughs> killing Charles Xavier, um, mm -hmm. but the bombs drop anyway and uh, everyone dies, but reality is saved. So I'm actually just going to give you my best bits of X-Men Omega, and by far and away the best bit is when Magneto kills Apocalypse. Magneto, I think, has always had... His powers are quite cool and quite versatile. Like, he can basically do it. He can fly. You know, I remember there was some Ultimate X-Men where he could stop people's blood because they had... Kind of like what he did in... What is it? X2? Where he's, he basically causes the guy to explode because of the iron in his blood. Right. Magneto, great powers. So, he builds himself... A suit of armor from all the metal scraps that are laid around the battlefield. So he looks like the Magneto that you know, but with a bit of extra piping. You know, he's got the helmet, he's got the the red suit, the purple cape. Great. Um, and Nate Gray is there as well, and the two of them are basically fighting Apocalypse. But Nate gets distracted by Nemesis, who shows up. Um, so. When it looks like Apocalypse is about to gain the upper hand, it then Magneto literally says, no, I've been concentrating, and then just tears Apocalypse in half. And it's great. It's a whole panel of just that. Just basically half a page of just Apocalypse split in half. Big fan. That was great. We Gene and uh, Cyclops are there, of course, and... Uh, Gene puts up a big telekinetic shield because these bombs are going to fall and just kill everybody. So she thinks she's strong enough to put up this telekinetic shield and try and protect the whole area so uh, so nobody dies. But Havoc again shows up and kills her. But it isn't Cyclops who gets to have revenge here, but Logan, who jumps down from one of the incoming uh, Zeppelins and then sticks his claws back into the lesser of the Summers brothers and gets to have his goodbye with the woman he loves. It is slightly undercut by Wolverine, uh, Logan cradling 
uh, Jean Grey and being and sort of being like, if only she was like a phoenix and could be reborn. Oh, yeah, okay, we get it. It's Jean Grey. We know. But the most shocking part of X-Men Omega is what happens to Colossus. Now, I know you've read Age of Apocalypse. Do you remember what insanity Colossus gets up to at the end of Age of Apocalypse? I do not. I do not at so, all. Ileana, Bishop, and Destiny are the only ones that can enter the crystal. And this is explained to the, to all the X-Men by Destiny herself. After reading Bishop's mind and having all the information that they need, she's like, only the three of us, the three of us that have the power to get Bishop to Earth 616 can enter the crystal. And Colossus agrees. He's like, okay, fine, whatever. Basically says, if Ileana dies, I'll kill you, Magneto, but basically accepts that this is the way it is. But then, midway through the battle, as Ileana is entering the crystal, he's like, nah, I'm actually not down with that at all. And so, makes a beeline for the crystal. But knowing that him entering the crystal will ruin everything, Iceman and Gambit stop him from doing so. And this drives Colossus into an absolute frenzy. And so his wife, Shadow Cat gets in his way. And what does he do? He crushes her. He just... just. Oh, no. It's basically explained that she doesn't phase because she feels that the love between her and Colossus will calm him down. But it doesn't. He just kills her. And <laughs> Miscalculated. Then, and then he snaps back to reality. The, the loss of his love is then what calms him down. But then Gambit kills him. So Colossus is dead as well. Oh, no. And, yeah, that's what happens to the last two members of Generation Next. Yikes. So, yeah, those are my top three bits of uh, X-Men Omega. But, of course, because this is mm-hmm. Age of Apocalypse, it never ends. And... Uh, it does not. That You would have thought you'd put X-Men Omega at the end of the book, and that would just be the capital. But, of course not. So we get another issue of Blink. I say issue, it's about four pages long. And there's about three speech bubbles in it. Um, But nothing really happens except that Blink goes through a portal and meets a random blue lady. I don't know who this blue lady is. I presume that this portal has led her back to, uh, not the Phantom Zone, that's DC, but wherever the X-Men equivalent, wherever it was that she went in those Blink issues before. But I don't know who this blue lady is. I don't know why this is included. I guess it's really like, well, here's what happened to Blink. Great. Mm-hmm. We get more X-Man, because of course we do. Um, and we get two issues of that. And in these issues, the Age of Apocalypse collides with Earth 616 somehow. It's not explained. So Nate is having all these visions about the Age of Apocalypse. And so him, Gene and Cyclops are travelling up this mountain in Alaska. Because that's supposedly where these feelings are coming from. And what do they find? An infinite... One of those are like Apocalypse's clone robot folks, has sort of melded into the mountain. So the three of them put a stop to it. Overall, the issues are fine. The only bonus of these, really, is that we actually get to see Scott, Gene and Nate interact, which didn't happen in Age of Apocalypse. So at least we get something with the three of them in it. And then we also get an issue of X-Men Prime. So these are the X-Men as you know them. Wolverine is Logan, not some guy that looks like Apocalypse. 
Jean is still alive. Bishop is back to being black. Um, uh, and this issue focuses on Bishop and Charles Xavier. So the Bishop's side is basically his internal battle between his own memories and the memories he inherited from the Bishop from the Age of Apocalypse. So about halfway through, he's having just a normal chat with Beast and, uh, and uh, Cyclops, but then basically snaps and thinks that is bad Cyclops and bad Beast, and there's a little bit of a scuffle there. So they, basically the three of them are investigating that. And then the other part is focused on the legacy virus, and I'm not that in the know with 90s X-Men, but from what I gather from this, it's some virus that's passed on from mutants to humans, and it's bad for humans. And this is bad for human-mutant relations. I think it's bad for mutants, but I'm not entirely sure because I think... Wait, does it? I mean, it's a big plot later on in the 90s, yeah. But I, I remember... Was it bad for mutants or humans? I don't know how... Like, I, I think Colossus is involved right. in the cure for it, so I don't know if that's just a coincidence or well, not. Well, maybe then it's just... The, the thought of it is bad for humans because this innocent mm-hmm. mutant is... Uh, He's been traveling across the United States to find the X-Men and well, get to Westchester and find the rumored X-Men that live there. Um, and as he's sitting in a like a gas station getting getting a snack, um, this, the news breaks out about this legacy virus. And uh, this mutant has got sort of shape-shifting ability, so his hand, he hasn't really got control over it, so his hand is slowly basically revealing that he's not a person but a mutant. And uh, so he runs out of this gas station and this group of teenagers within it are like, well, if he ran out as this news about mutants came on the TV, he must be a mutant too. Let's go kill him. Because that's just normal things you think. So this group of teenagers posse up, I guess, and go chase down this mutant and beat him to death. And uh, before he is killed, Charles is you know, sensing it with his telepathic abilities and him and Storm go off to find this mutant, but when they get there, he's he's already dead. I, mean, I think it's really included to be like, because it ends with some spiel about this is why the X-Men fight. They fight for human-mutant relations and have the peace. You know, they're basically the anti-Age of Apocalypse. Um, and that's it. That is it. Age of Apocalypse... That's it. Done. Wrapped up. I can put it on my shelf and read something else. <laughs> so I guess, like, overall, um, what would you say to somebody else that wants to read this? Hmm. Don't, maybe. Or maybe... Yeah. I don't know. Because maybe just skip volume one, because that's not really necessary. Because there's so much exposition at the start mm-hmm. of even these issues in Volume 4. You could probably read just that and be absolutely fine in understanding what's happening. I mean, you know Apocalypse is bad. The X-Men are apt to stop him. Maybe, I mean, you're right. You you know, we've talked about it before. It's a product of the time. If you want to go and see what a big event is like back in the 90s, I guess you could do worse than Age of Apocalypse. But... I would say read something. Or maybe not read it like I did. Maybe just... They must be trades out there of just Excalibur, Age mm-hmm. of Apocalypse, or just X-Men, Age of Apocalypse. Because constantly jumping around... I, I don't know, actually. 
like yeah. six different teams all doing different things with different members and constantly changing guest stars, especially if you're not as in the know with who the X-Men are. Like, oh, it's some random fire mutant has come in. And, uh, you know, I'm sure if you're well in the know of who the X-Men are, you'll be like, oh, yeah, it's Fireman or whatever. But if you don't know that, then you're just like, oh, great, mm-hmm. someone else that gets killed off immediately and I don't care. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a highly intent, like, it's very demanding of your knowledge, this book, and it's, like, not uh, very welcoming of new readers. I think it's, uh, like, conceptually, it, it does some things that I, I think the X-Men have leaned on a lot since then, so I can see why it has the reputation that it does. I don't think the writing has necessarily set up the test of, the test of time, nor has the, the art, so... I think I agree with you. I don't know that I would recommend it to some. I think I would recommend that they read yes, the Wikipedia synopsis true. and save themselves um, the time. I won't lie. I've looked at it when trying to understand what's been going on uh, yeah. in these uh, over these past four months. Yeah, read something. Hmm. I don't know. I haven't read them, but supposedly the new, the new, the new ages of X Men. The what is it? House of X and X of Swords or something. Those supposedly those hit this new Hickman run of X Men. Great, read that. Or anything else. Messiah Complex. I think that stands as my favourite uh, X-Men event. But as well as reading comic books, Rodrigo and I, if, may, if you follow him on Twitter, you will know what else he's been doing. And I did it too. We have seen the Mortal Kombat film. And I did have a Google. There are Mortal Kombat comic books, so it's absolutely relevant. Yeah. Related. Now, we'll start with you because you wrote a tweet. Did you like it? Yes. <laughs> I did not. I did not like it. Um, here's the thing. I think I mentioned this in previous episodes. I host a movie podcast called Layered Butter. And I talk. I watch a lot of movies. I talk a lot of, about movies. I don't have this thing where it's like, yeah, like if you turn off your brain and it blah, 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 like it's good. Or it's like, yeah, but it's like if you think it's just like if you if you look at it just like as a, from a video game perspective, it's a good movie. It's like. That does that's mm. I don't make those distinctions. Like yeah. a movie is either good or it's not. It doesn't matter the material, it doesn't matter what it's aimed for. And I'm also not like this thing where it's like, oh, it has to be like this mind-blowing cinematography and revolutionizing script writing for it to be good. It yeah. can be yeah. a fun, good movie. I just don't think this one was particularly I thought good. It was Did you enjoy it? Fine. Very much, I guess, an age of apocalypse mm-hmm. of uh of of films. <laughs> I mean, how familiar are you with Mortal Kombat, I suppose, is the like the first thing. Like, are all these people new to you, or because I think that too can affect your enjoyment if you so, don't know who anyone is. So I guess I'm. I mean, I don't want to say that I ever was uh, an intense Mortal Kombat fan, but I played Mortal Kombat like one, two, three, Ultimate three. I played the arcade version. I don't remember which one this is in the lineage, but it's like the one where you had a. Uh, like a weapon that you could impale into people where there was like this uh, Frost character that I think, I don't know what her relationship was to Sub-Zero, but it was like a female Sub-Zero. I played like uh, Mythologies, which is like that solo Sub-Zero story for the N64. I didn't play the other one that I think was like a a Jack Sonya one or either like a Liu Kang Kung Lao situation. But I I mean, I know enough. I know a lot of the references. Like of the characters, I think the only ones that were unfamiliar to me were... 
that yeah, uh, winged woman. But I knew that she was in the mm-hmm. game, like, mm-hmm. but just that I haven't played the game that she's from. And then the other guy, the one with the hammer. Like, again, it's like, I know that he's in the games. I just haven't yeah. played a game that he's in. But generally pretty not uh, like uh, familiar with the concept. I mean, it's like the, some of... Here's the thing. I think immediately you can recognize that it's like in terms of fatalities, yeah. they did good. Like, they, they, they gave you some moments here and there to enjoy. But it's like... It's like the the core of the story, even within this movie, is like this tournament that seals the fate of one versus the other. But it's like yep. this movie doesn't even get to that point, right? Like, so it's left for potential following movies, which makes this movie feel irrelevant to like the, the, the bigger thing. That was like one of my big complaints. And then the other one was like, I barely cared about the existence oh. of this new character. <laughs> that was one of my notes. Added in. And 100% if I... If I barely cared about this man, how little did I care about his family members that were also in this movie? Not like in a major way, but it's like you were wasting screen time on these secondary characters who already like their only nexus to the story. Their only like link to the story is this cold dude who already feels like superfluous. Like I could absolutely go without him. So that's kind of, I guess, like no connection whatsoever there. And I also thought Kung Lao was the coolest one and they killed him. So... I mean, I guess like Shang Tsung could turn into That's him really in the true. next movie. And yeah, we still I. That. Hey, you know, I like Mortal Kombat. It's fine, um, but like, why did they? Yeah, why didn't they just go? Why wasn't Liu Kang or someone the main character? Why did they feel the need to have this random guy that is some descendant of Scorpion? I mean, spoilers, I guess. Um, uh, yeah, they could have just Scorpion could have been the main character. Anyone that exists in Mortal Kombat already could have been the main character. It's not as if there's not very many characters to pick from. They're like, no, let's go with this guy that lives in modern day times because he he'll be like the voice of the audience who doesn't know about Mortal Kombat. But but I mean that that was fine. Mm-hmm. Another thing I wasn't a fan of is why couldn't the people just have magic powers like they're doing it why did they all have to be like find your yeah. inner inner thing discover for example kano mm-hmm. in the game has a robot eye that fires a laser beam but in this he he just fires a laser beam out of yeah. his eye because that's his like inner power mm-hmm. or whatever like sonya fires yeah. like ring power rings from her arms yeah and it's interesting because I thought I was thinking about this point too because I also felt like it it was a bit uh, I don't know I guess contrived or unnecessary. But then, like, how do you get around it in terms of narrative if you want to still give these people powers? And I was like, well, here's the thing: like, you're saying, like Kano yeah. actually has like a cybernetic implant, so you don't need to give him powers. And then Jax has metal arms already, so you didn't need to give him, like, weak metal arms that then got upgraded. Well, that one doesn't make any inner, sense, inner, because inner power. that's another guy so really down. Like... If Jax's magic powers are stronger metal arms, what would have happened if he hadn't lost his arms? Would they have been replaced by metal arms? Yeah. We've just had, like, massive arms? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, not great, but, so, I guess, so, like, how, I guess the only question, Mark, would have been, like, Sonya Blade, like, how do you give her powers, right? And it's, like, I guess, A, maybe you don't, and that's kind of okay. Or, B, like, give her some type of cybernetic arm thing, like, like not cut off her arm, but give her, like, gauntlets that shoot, like, an Iron Man. Like, yeah, I think the the whole finding your inner power thing was (laughs) 
whack. And uh, like the main guy, his armor, like his armor was kind of a, a bad power too. Like it wasn't oh, even. Could, well, don't forget, he could also power. make like I don't know, like oh. appear out of nowhere, and had like energy punches, yeah, but only when he uh, needed them. It's funny because it's like from an X-Men perspective that we were just in, sometimes powers seem completely arbitrary, and yet this guy's powers exceeded my regular expectation of some type of determining what the, the scope yeah. of these powers are. Another thing they changed, you can't just fight in Mortal Kombat. You have to be, like, you have to have the magic mark of the Mortal Kombat, like, logo emblazoned on your skin somewhere. And that's yeah. passed down either through generations like the main guy, Cole, who is descendant from Scorpion, or you just kill somebody that has it, and then you get it. Yeah. I think the, 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 the to be positive on parts of this movie, though, the Scorpion Sub-Zero fight from the beginning had me very, very excited, and they released that early uh, in the YouTube piece, I guess. So I saw that video before mm. I saw that movie, and it was like seven minutes or so. I saw it, like, this looks great, and then as soon as it kind of switched over i like it was a very quick dive in terms of how uh excited i was for this like i said there's still some cool moments like in terms of fatalities and stuff but like would i say this is a good movie no would i be excited for a sequel probably not either unless i know that it's like the writing well, or the creative writing, team I feel like it some of the changed. worst bits of writing is when they shoehorn in things that they say in like for example kung lao cuts this angel woman in half and then says out loud flawless victory why i understand yeah. why but no actual i understand kung lao lives in a cave or whatever but no one is saying that at one point yeah. someone says test your might at one point someone says fatality when they kill someone the only one that makes yeah, sense yeah. is when shang Tsung. Mm -hmm. oh i suppose when scorpion pulls the guy and he says get over here that's fine of course that that makes sense but the other one is uh yeah, your soul is mine. Oh, yeah. Kano wins. I think he also says Kano wins, yeah. right? Yeah, and here's the thing. There's a fine balance between being too fan y and like putting in those Easter eggs for people that kind of uh, admire or love the, the material beyond the project that you're showing. It's like, you know, there's a moment where you can see behind Raiden and, and crew like mm. this uh, fan, this blue fan, and you're like, cool, you know, that's that's relevant to Katana at some point. But that's cool. I think when you do like what you're saying, where like you're shoehorning in dialogue for like you're, it's almost like you're beating people over the head with the, the only positive egg, is, is if there is a sequel, they much. can't do it that they can't say that again. All right, they've used the joke now. Oh, that's very true. And yet, and yet they might. But yeah, if you were to, I think I'd give Mortal Kombat five out of ten. Just bang, because the fights were cool. Like the the fight at the beginning mm -hmm. that was cool. Admittedly, the fight at the end between. Scorpion Sub Zero, much less cool. Scorpion kind of sucks yeah. when he has his powers. Uh, yeah, I guess I out of ten, I would probably give it somewhere in the two Ooh. region. I I didn't like it, and I would say if you have two hours and you love Mortal Kombat, your time is better spent playing Mortal Kombat, or maybe watching that first film from the nineties, or watching the first film. Yeah, like here's the thing: I don't think this movie lived up to the first film, or even the second Ooh. film, which is already questionable quality. Like this one is not even there. Like I, uh, I would say if I of this whatever amount of time, there is maybe a total of fifteen minutes in which I was feeling positive, which is probably including the fatality, like maybe some of the Sub Zero fight and the seven minutes of the original Sub Zero Scorpion fight. But it is uh, 
majorly overwhelmed by a lot of the bad writing, bad dialogue, weird contrived ideas that they brought into it. It's like, what's Shang Tsung's whole plot? It's like, technically by contract, we're only allowed to fight in this tournament, but I'm going to keep on trying to sabotage this thing by showing up. And then their counter plan is like, we're going to teleport to these specific locations that are just like stages in the game where <laughs> you'll face one, you'll face one, we'll team up two against one. Like it's, it's just, it, it seems like nothing serves a purpose of telling a story, but it's just meant to be like, I just want to show video game people that I've also seen the video. I've, I've played the video game. So that's where I, where I land with it. I think the worst thing of all is they remix that Mortal Kombat theme into like some sort of dubstep tune. And I don't, I hate it. Yeah. Not, not a big fan of that. So yeah, yeah, you might as well just include it. Like, if you have the rights for it, just throw it like in. They, as they, they put in like the like the main bit of music when Scorpion pierces Sub Zero, and then it's like, oh, now mm-hmm. it's just sort of generic computer music noise. But if you do have a spare two hours, you could listen to this instead. And this has been <laughs> a PhD Student Reads episode fifteen. You can follow the show on Twitter at PhD Reads, and you can follow Rodrigo on all of his. Exciting movie-based adventures. At Arcocting, R-C-O-K-T-I-N-G. And you can listen to or find any Layered Butter stuff at, at Layered Butter on Instagram. And you can search up Layered Butter in any podcast place to find that. And if you do follow the show on Twitter, I will put up the I've reached the end of what I'm reading poll for a week. I'll pick three things of my ever-growing unread comic book stack and whatever comes out on top. Is what I'll start next, diverse. Whatever it is, it's going to be short. I can tell you that right now. I'm going to probably pick three things yeah. where there is only one thing of it. It's it's going to be short and it's going to be better. Wait, so exactly. exciting things. If it's worse, I to. have hmm, <laughs> a bad future ahead. But as I say, this has been Fishing Reads episode 15. I've been Dan Lundwood. That's been Rodrigo. Goodbye. Test your mind. <laughs>